Good evening, everyone. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. First Thessalonians chapter 4. And if you would, please stand with me out of respect for God's holy word. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we'll be reading from verse 13, 13 to the end of the chapter. This is God's holy word. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you for standing. Let us pray once more. Oh, our Father in heaven, I pray that we would hear these words, Amen. that I would, and that you would help me to speak them as well. And oh, Father, that we would comfort one another with these words. For Christ's sake, amen. amen. Today, in the Lord's severe but gracious and wise providence, he chose to take away from us a dear brother. One of our fathers in Christ for some of us. A brother in Christ for others of us. Not long ago, we spoke with him, ate with him, fellowshiped with him, prayed with him, heard him speak of Christ. Now we will miss his company here in this world. While we rejoice in God's goodness for so many things, the Lord's house tonight, the gathering of God's people, has become a house of mourning in one sense. I think all of us understand that it's just not as chipper as it was at the beginning of the day. We're not as happy as we were because of death. The house of joy and gladness has for the moment become sober and somber. Yet Paul, the apostle, Christ's servant, his apostle, he commands us, comfort one another with these words. And so by God's grace, I desire to obey that apostle's command, to comfort our hearts by considering the truth of Christ's return and the resurrection of his people. But we have to start where Paul started with the negative first, as we see in verse 13. He says, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. The unbelieving world has no hope 
in death. Let me say that again. The unbelieving world has no hope in death. Only deep and painful despair. The world has no hope because only truth gives hope. Ignorance does ignorance is not bliss, and ignorance does not give hope. And here in verse 13, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren. He's telling us we need to know something. Well, the world is ignorant, and in their ignorance, they have no hope. Ignorance of death, ignoring death, escaping death in your mind is not hope. Pushing it to the edge of your consciousness, trying to get it out of your mind is not hope. Death is an enemy that you cannot escape. Death is all around us. You cannot evade it or overpower it. You cannot outwit or outsmart death. You cannot forget about death and hope he passes you by. Sooner or later, death will meet your family. Sooner or later, he will meet your church, as he has several times in the past months here. Sooner or later, death will meet you in your path as you're going about your plans, your purposes, your dreams, your pursuits. Sooner or later, I will meet death. Sooner or later, you will not fight him off. Sooner or later, your friends will be having your funeral. So Paul says, do not be ignorant on this subject. It's a vital one. For the unsaved, ignoring death means feeding complacency and carelessness in the face of catastrophic destruction. Eternal punishment from the presence of the Lord is worse than any hurricane or any tornado, any fire, any tragedy, the eternal loss of one's soul is catastrophic. And if you are ignorant of these things, if you ignore, if you pass by, if you push them out of your mind, you will have a hard awakening. For the Christian believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, being ignorant of the meaning of death and these truths can mean allowing despair and faithlessness, unbelief to creep in where Faith in Christ and the grace of the living hope that we have in Christ should fill our hearts. So whether you're unsaved or saved, whether you are outside of Christ or in Christ, do not be ignorant of death and eternity and Christ's return. Paul says, do not be ignorant. The world's sorrow is a hopeless sorrow in contrast with that of believers, As we see there in verse 13, Paul tells us not to be ignorant, and he says he doesn't want us to be ignorant about those who are asleep. He says that ye sorrow not even as others which have no hope. There's a contrast there between the sorrow of those who are in Christ and have hope in Christ and those who do not. The world, the unbelieving world, sorrows in a particular way. Their sorrow arises from this Ignorance of God's truth and also no faith in Christ's gospel and no expectation of glory and eternal happiness in Christ. Ignorance covers their hopelessness for many people. They ignore death. They try to hide from it. 
Others, they cover their hopelessness with lies from a false pagan worldview, and they celebrate. In our day, there are some who celebrate violence, gore, skeletons, and death themes. You see them stamping skulls on their body. Why? They're, they are fearful of death. They dread death. But they are, in a way, acting like they have conquered it by saying, no, I embrace it. I remember being downtown one day, and Charlie Luther and was leading a group of us as we were going down. And um, I stopped and talked to one man, and as I began to speak of the gospel of Christ, he bared his arm, and he showed me his arm. He said, I like tattoos of skeletons, of vultures picking out the eyes of skeletons. And he had it on his arm. Dreadful, gory death scene. He was trying to celebrate death as a way of saying, no, that's where we're all going. I'm embracing it before it comes here. That's tragic. Death is not something to celebrate, not something to enjoy, not something to say, I saw right, we'll, we'll, we'll party in hell. No, they're covering their hopelessness. They think by taking the bull of death by the horns, they've conquered it. But they're only belying their terrible hopelessness and their false way of approaching it. The world's cliches of religious Christian hope without Christ are empty and are hopeless. So many times I've heard someone say, oh, he's in a better place. Now, that's true for our brother. His faith was in Christ. He's in a much better place. But that is not true for anyone who is of the world. Anyone who is not in Christ, they are not in a better place. They are in a tragically worse place. Here, there was hope while there was life. But there, there is no hope. So they shroud their hopelessness with cliches of religion that are baseless and groundless. The world has no hope because the intermediate state will be misery and pain for them, and eternity will be the lake of fire. In Luke chapter 16, the Lord Jesus records for us an after-death experience. A rich man and a poor man are both claimed by death. The poor man is carried by angels to Abraham's bosom, as we trust our brother was as well. And the rich man lifts up his eyes in hell and cries for a drop of water for his tongue. No relief is provided and cannot be. The world has no hope. The unbelieving world has no hope because the day of judgment will be the sealing of their doom. The Lord Jesus Christ said, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. John chapter 5. The world has no hope. No hope in death. The lake of fire will be their end. As we see in Revelation chapter 20, there was that great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. There was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every man, 
according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. No hope for the unbelieving world. And so when the Apostle Paul here in verse 13 says, I don't want you to sorrow even as others which have no hope, he's contrasting the Christian's view of death, the death of a Christian, with that of the world. So while the world has no hope in death, the truth of the gospel gives believers hope in the face of death. And what is this hope? Well, many have helpfully given us a short definition of biblical hope. It's a confident expectation. It's not a hope so. It's not a a wish. It's not, well, I wish for a pink unicorn and all of that. It has nothing to do with the world of wishes. It has to do with the revelation of God's truth coming to us through the word of God and then sealed to us by the Holy Spirit working in our hearts, revealing the grace of God, the power of God, the work of God to us, And then we come to understand, this is God's gospel, and it is for me. And when I die, I will be with him. That is the Christian hope. So in verse 14, after telling us that we shouldn't sorrow like the world, then he tells us the grounds of our hope. And that's what he spends the next few verses on. The gospel, in verse 14, he says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, Even so, them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. So the first ground of our hope in the face of death is that the gospel assures us of union with Christ Jesus and therefore participation in his resurrection life. He starts the verse there in verse 14 with four. It connects us to the previous verse because he's showing us that the no hope that many have in in the world is contrasted with the hope that we have, and here's the ground for that hope that we should have. The argument here in verse 14 is that Jesus' death and resurrection secure for his people resurrection as well at Christ's second coming. Since Jesus is united to his people, he will not let them miss out on the wedding celebration that he's planned for them. He won't forget them. He won't, them, he won't let them miss the event. Now, it would appear from the way that Paul speaks here in this chapter that there might have been some among the believers in Christ who were confused about the return of Christ and confused about what might happen to those who died before Christ returned because it appears that many expected Christ to return eminently, and we still expect that because that's what he said. I come quickly, so watch. Be sober. So we should watch and wait for Christ's return. And so many were maybe expecting that he would come in their lifetime. Paul himself says uh, later on, he uses the word we in reference to those who would be alive and remain at Christ's return. And so maybe he expects himself even to be alive, possibly, although that wasn't assured to him. And so it would seem that some might have thought that those who had died would miss out. And maybe their hope in Christ was gone, that their death left them behind from the blessings that Christ would bring. We don't know for sure if that's what people thought, but Paul is definitely striking that to the ground 
even if that wasn't his main intention. Those who sleep in Jesus, which is a beautiful way of saying those who have died with faith in Christ, will be raised again at Christ's return. They will come with him and they will rise again when he returns. In the end of verse 14 there, he says, no, at the beginning of verse 14, I'm sorry, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, as a Christian, you profess to believe that Jesus died and rose again. Amen. You believe in Christ's death and resurrection. Those are central truths of the Christian faith. So you believe them. But do you also rest in the glorious truth that when you die, you will rise again. God holds his little ones through the cosmic changes that we call death or sleep, passing away, and he keeps them until that day when he will present them with all his saints faultless before the presence of his glory. Them that sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Then in verse 15, secondly, the second reason for our hope and the reason why we should not sorrow as others do. He says, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, this is God's word revealed through his apostle, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. Now this word prevent certainly doesn't mean keep someone from doing something. It doesn't mean that there's the possibility we might you know, stand in the way of those who had died and need to rise again. It's used here in the sense of preceding or being first. Paul might be saying, we won't meet Christ first. They will. Or he might mean, we who are alive won't have any special advantage over them. Either way, Paul is removing the inordinate concern that the Thessalonians might have about those who had died before Christ returned. Christ will take care of them. They will not miss out on anything that we who are alive when Christ returns will encounter. This verse 15 also shows us that the return of Christ is imminent, as we mentioned before, because he says there that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. Paul includes himself, as we mentioned. Now, Paul was not alive when Christ returned. That wasn't God's plan. But Christ gave his promise, and Paul believed Christ promised that he would return quickly, and we should as well. Christ will return and it will be soon. Soon in God's plan might not look like soon to us, but it is soon, and it is in perfect timing. The third reason for our hope and not sorrowing as the world does in the face of death is in verse 16. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. The dead in Christ will be the first to experience resurrection at the astonishing return of Christ. And those who remain alive will be changed immediately behind them. It says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, he is the second Adam, the second man, as we see in 1 Corinthians 15 and also Romans 5. He is that man 
who kept God's law perfectly and procured for us a perfect righteousness. He died. He rose again because death couldn't hold him down because he was sinless and he's the son of God and he ascended up into glory waiting. Waiting for what? Waiting for all of his people. And he has gone to wait for the time of his kingdom. He's now returning. When he returns, he will be returning to claim the throne of earth as well as heaven. He will be coming to conquer death and destruction and hell even as he has already conquered them in, in their essence, but in effect and in all of its practical outworking, he'll bring an end to the last enemy, which is death. Those who trusted Christ, though they were dead, yet shall they live. He says that the Lord himself shall descend from heaven. He won't send a deputy. He's certainly not going to... Um, just send his angels, although he will come with shining armies of angels to take his bride to himself. But they will come as his entourage. He will come, the Lord himself. And that himself, it emphasizes the reality of his coming. He will come, and it will be the Lord Christ. This is the real man, Jesus Remember what the disciples encountered as they stood on the Mount of Olives. After Christ blessed them, he then ascended up as they looked on, and he went up until a cloud received him out of their sight. And then angels, two angels, were standing there, and they said to the, these disciples, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? Well, I think you and I would too. If we had just seen a man we had walked with for years, and then he died and rose again, if we saw him ascending up into heaven, I think we'd stay there a while. But these angels, they actually stopped them. They said, why are you gazing up into heaven like this? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. At this moment, my brethren, Christ is in a place. The man, Christ Jesus, is in a place, a I guess we could use the word physical, although no one is ever going to find that place. It is a glorious place. It is heaven. And it is real. And the real man, Jesus Christ, will come again from that place. The Son of God who had existed with his Father and with the Holy Spirit from all eternity became a real man in this world, a real baby, a real boy, a real adolescent, a real man. Then he really died, and now he is really and truly waiting for a real and genuine ascent, descent into this miserable world. He will descend, as it says here. He will descend from heaven. He will not simply materialize here. He is coming from somewhere else because he did not dematerialize when he left this earth. He is a man, a real man, and he will come as a man, a glorious man, a man unlike you have ever seen, a man before whom we will all fall in worship and praise and fear. The man of glory will come again and show his glory. The man of heaven will come to earth. And of course, when we use the word man there, it's with a capital M. He is the man. He is the son of man and the Son of God. He promised he would come again. How could he not? He said, let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, 
Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That's John 14. From his promise, we know that the Lord Jesus Christ has not yet completed everything he said he would do because he has not yet returned. On the cross of his horrific suffering as he carried the sin of his people and satisfied his father's wrath, he declared, it is finished. But the results of his finished work are not all carried out to their full completion yet. You should be glad they're not because the fact that Christ did not return and complete his work before you were born and grew up and lived in this world means that you got to be part of it. Christ was waiting for the full bringing in of all of his people. <clears throat> you still had to be saved. You had to live in this world as a, as a Christian by the power of the Spirit. And then you had to die and wait for him to return in glory. <clears throat> but Christ made his promise that he would return, and he will. He will return, and he will take us to himself. But how will he return? He will return with a shout. With a shout. Verse 16, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. Oh, what will that shout sound like to our ears? The dead will hear it. The dead don't hear anything now. When the blue angels go over, the dead do not hear them. But when Christ shouts, the dead will hear his voice. Amen. The living will hear it. Oh, this is the mighty man of war. This is the great conqueror of the ages. This is the seed of the woman. This is the one who comes out from the wilderness with blood on his garments the blood of his redemption and or the blood of his judgment. His shout will be life from the dead for your dead ones. <clears throat> Those who have lain in the dust of death for many ages will not miss his voice. Their beloved, the lover of their souls, their king, will speak. And this voice of Christ is what effectively raises the dead. There will be other sounds as we will see very shortly, but this voice of Christ Raises the dead. Amen. Just as Christ told us, and we already read it in John chapter 5, marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. We all know the voices of our family members. You know your spouse's voice your mother's voice, your father's voice, your children's sweet voices. Depending on the situation, we have different feelings when we hear those voices. You know, if you hear your, your parent call out to you with a very strong and sharp voice, you have a particular feeling of um, tension and probably guilt coming on. If you hear your spouse's voice speak to you very softly, you have a very sweet and um, good emotion in response. It's called love, I think. We will hear Christ's voice. What will it be to hear the Lord Jesus Christ for the first time? <clears throat> we will all hear him together. It will not be meek and lowly. 
It will not be again that Savior's voice that was sweet and low. It will not be the voice of the man of sorrows who did not lift up or cry in the streets. It will be the voice of the king. It will be the voice of triumph, the voice of judgment, the voice of salvation. It will be the the greatest sermon that was ever heard, but it will be the shortest. It will be the voice of Christ. Every one of you will hear that voice. One time as I was struggling with assurance and sorry about that. One time as I was struggling with assurance and thinking about Christ, I thought I will get to hear him even if I don't know him. And the fact that that filled my heart with joy, I realized, oh, I must love him. But the point goes both ways. Children, you will hear his voice. You will hear him. <laughs> At that word of power, all things that are in heaven or in earth will flee away before the face of the Son of God. What a voice. Oh, my friend, you will hear it. How do you respond to Christ's voice now? How do you hear it? How you hear it now has a great bearing on how you will hear it then. I too often have ignored his voice. His voice comes quietly. It comes through a printed word. It comes through a sermon preached. It comes through weak and fallible men. But on that day, it will come with glory. It will come with power, and it will be Christ. It will be the desire of the nations and the fear of the nations. It will be the one who has all of your hopes or all of your fears. It will be the Christ, the King. His voice is the only voice that matters. His approval or his judgment. How do you hear him now? You will hear him then. Not only comes with the voice of Christ, that great shout, but he comes with the voice of the archangel. And this is a different word for voice. It could be simply the sound or the call of the archangel. It's not the shout that we saw with Christ. When our Savior and King comes, he will come with his angels, and you and I will hear and see those angels. Matthew tells us in several different passages how the angels will accompany Christ as he returns. For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then shall he reward every man 
according to his works. Matthew 24, And he shall send forth his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Matthew 25, When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, as we've already seen that he will, and all the holy angels with him. It makes it sound like he won't leave any at home to keep the, to, to keep the fort. They'll all be with him. They don't care what's going on in heaven if he's out of there. Then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. Amen. And before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. So when he says here that the voice of the archangel will be heard when Christ descends from heaven with a shout. It reminds us of what he tells us in other places, that all the angels of God will be with him. While many have doubted the heavenly realm, they have thought, oh, this is all there is. They'll be surprised on that day. Their eyes will be opened like that um, servant of Elisha, I believe it was, Elisha said, Lord, open his eyes. And he looked around and saw all of those angels on the mountains. We will see the angels on that day. Verse 16 also tells us that when Christ himself, the Lord himself, descends from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, that it will be with the trump of God. I think all that I know to say about this trumpet is that it will be loud. It'll be like Mount Sinai, where the trumpet blast sounded long, and it announced God's presence in holiness and power. No one will miss this trumpet blast, and I believe all the ears of the deaf will be opened. If all the dead will be raised to hear it, then surely all the deaf will be able to hear it too. It'll be one loud trumpet. And the end of verse 16, he climaxes with, the dead in Christ shall rise first. So remember our main point here is that we are not to sorrow as the world sorrows. Remember, they have no hope. They have no expectation, no confident expectation of any good in the face of death. But as Christians, we do. Well, what is that? That confident expectation is that when Christ returns, those who have died and are asleep, that's what asleep means, is those who have died, they will rise first. Amen. The dead in Christ will rise first. Here's the comfort, brother, sister. The dead in Christ will rise first. As soon as the announcement of Christ's glorious presence in the world is complete, the very next item on the heavenly order of events program is to raise the dead in Christ. And what a rising that will be. It will be better than Lazarus's rising, for his grave clothes clung to him, and he had to have help to unwrap himself. And it appears he died again. I don't know of any place where he is residing at this moment. I don't think Lazarus can be looked up in, the, in, in Google or anywhere else. He died again. But this resurrection, this rising, will be better than that. It'll be better than Ezekiel's valley of dry bones, because there will be no intermediate step where everybody lies lifeless, with fleshed out but lifeless on the ground. It will be like Christ's rising. Remember, his grave clothes were neatly separated and laid 
in a way that demonstrated that his rising was glorious. Amen. He's the first fruits of them that sleep, as 1 Corinthians tells us, and therefore our rising will be like his. Charles is rising. Be like Christ. Amen. Christ is the first of the crowd to escape the grave in this way. What a rising it will be. Every cemetery, every grave, everywhere throughout this death-filled globe where bodies or parts of bodies, atoms or molecules of dead bodies are, and only God knows how all that will work. It, uh, you don't have to figure it out because you're not the one that's going to do it. God's going to do it. Those dead will be raised to life again. The dead in Christ will rise first. My friend, here tonight, are you in Christ? He says here, the dead in Christ will rise first. If it had not been our brother who passed into eternity today, but you, would you be dead in Christ or outside of Christ? Oh, to be in Christ, in death. Oh, I don't want to be found by the angels at Christ's return, outside of Christ outside of Christ. So the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then verse 17, Paul encourages us, encourages us that not only will those who remain not have an advantage over those who are asleep in Christ, and not only will those who are dead in Christ rise first at Christ's glorious return when he comes with that shout and the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, but in verse 17 he tells us that we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. That's when we'll experience all that we're told in 1 Corinthians 15, where he tells us, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. That's part of what he means by being caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. We'll be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we, the living who are left behind, shall be changed. Amen. And so our hope in the face of death is not only a hope for our brethren who have gone before us, it's also a hope for ourselves because it gives us a special opportunity to remember and to think upon the great work that Christ will do at his return and that none of us will miss out because Christ has paid the pardon for all of his saints. He has redeemed all of them. He has saved all of them and he will come and take all of them to be with himself, and he will give all of them glory, and not only to take them to be with himself, but to make a new heavens and a new earth in which dwelleth righteousness, and we will be here in a new earth in glory after the judgment and the new creation. Amen. Why does he say the air, to meet him in the air? Why not meet him on the ground? I don't know, but I can imagine, you see, the resurrection has just happened. The Lord has descended. The saints have come with him. The angels have come down with him. And the saints have received their immortal bodies. But the judgment is not yet set. The vast multitudes of the unsaved, those outside of Christ, are raised as well. And they are given bodies with which they will suffer for all eternity. But they are not meeting Christ in the air. They are on the ground. They are being gathered by the angels for destruction.
Maybe that's why the Lord calls his bride to meet him in the air. The bride meeting her beloved is not something for the wicked to see up close. It's a private meeting, and it's a glorious meeting. And it's God's grace, Christ's grace to his loved people. And he will meet them in a private place. That's, that's what you do with your bride. You don't meet your bride in front of some crowd of the wicked. You meet her in some private place. You kiss her. Then you go to do work with her. Then you go to do the judgment, which will follow. And thus will begin eternity with the Lord. Paul doesn't even mention all the rest because those things are important. They are also mentioned in other parts of Scripture, the judgment, the various, the creation of the new heavens, the new earth. He doesn't even mention those. Here he's dealing with the hope for those who have died in Jesus. And he says, we can rejoice because at Christ's return, Christ will take care of them as well as us. And then all the rest will follow. Thus shall we ever be with the Lord. Oh, what will that be to be with the Lord? Then will be answered Christ's prayer in its fullness when he said in John 17, as we've been reminded so often recently, he prayed, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. And then what does Paul tell us to do? He actually gives us a command in verse 18. He says, wherefore, and wherefore, of course, you look back to see what it's there for. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words, because of all that has come before, because of Christ's glorious return, that it will not be to our advantage in opposition to those who have died in Christ. Those who have died in Christ shall rise first when his shout is heard, when the voice of the archangel is heard, when the trump of God sounds and the Lord himself descends. The dead will rise first. We will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and will ever be with the Lord. So comfort one another with these words. Encourage one another. Remind each other of these things. And so that's what I intended to do this evening, was to comfort you with these words. As our brother has left us, we could simply feel the void that we have in this world. We could simply mourn the loss of his companionship on the way to glory. We could hide our heads in ignorance and end up being cynical and despairing and disbelieve God's promises. Or we could, if we do not know Christ, it could lead us to just harden ourselves in that ignorance. But no, remember what God's word says and be comforted in the grace promises that God has given us. Here in this sin-cursed earth, death is our fiercest enemy. All the other enemies we hate most use death as their weapon. Why do we hate disease? Because it can kill us. Why do we hate war? Because it kills lots of people. Why do we despise wicked men? because they spread death and destruction. Death is the reason we hate anything we hate. Death is our greatest terror and the greatest fear in this world. And Paul says the gospel makes Christians strange people in a world terrorized by death. You can be comforted in the face of death. Comfort one another with these words. Be comforted tonight regarding our brother who has now breathed his last. He sighed his last sigh. He's felt his last twinge of pain. Be comforted tonight because Christ will return 
and we will not prevent our brother from rising. We will not go ahead of him. We will not have an advantage over him. He will rise first, and we will meet him and the Lord in the air and ever be with the Lord. These words that Paul has given us are true. Notice he says that the comfort is in these words. They're true words, and they rest on the sure foundation of God's goodness and grace in Jesus Christ. They are gospel words. They are life words. They are hope words. They're eternally true all down through the rolling ages. As grave after grave claims its silent corpse, as large coffins and little coffins are lowered into their graves over the coming years, some graves will be unmarked. Some graves will be mass graves when there's pestilence and war. And as thousands and thousands, millions and billions go to their graves, God's word rings out like a mighty trumpet blast only to be outsounded by the trumpet blast of the great gospel king himself when he descends. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. O our Father in heaven, thank you that you have comforted our hearts. Lord, your word comforts our hearts. Thank you, Lord, that you have told us not only the way things are, but the way they will be. And Lord, as our Pastor Clarence so often reminded us, our joy and our comfort is in the fact that things will not always be the way they are. This sinful world will not always be full of sin. You will make a new one. Oh Lord, the, the dying process that is now claiming its billions will one day be at an end. And Lord, there will be glory, there will be life, there will be knowing you, knowing Christ. Oh Lord Jesus, thank you that you will come and take us to yourself. Oh Lord, fill our hearts with comfort. Oh Lord, a comfort that gives us strength to oppose sin. Oh Lord, a comfort that gives us strength to speak your gospel to others. Oh, Lord, a comfort that makes us strange in this world as we have true joy and not a false joy in the face of death. Oh, Lord, fill us with that comfort, and especially our sister as she mourns her husband's loss. For Christ's sake, amen. Amen. If you would, please stand. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole, spirit, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. Amen. Amen. You may be dismissed. <clears throat>